0: Welcome to Sermons of Grace with Pastor David Murphy of the Grace Baptist Church in Gamble's Terrace, Antigua. Last week in our study of the Book of Romans, Pastor Murphy showed us that man needs the power of grace which is superior to his sin. Today we'll study where this reign of grace began and its power of Christ's righteousness.
1: Alright, turn with me please to the Book of Romans. I would like to go back to chapter 5 and verse 21 I want to read from verse number 20 and and, then but I will focus on verse 21 and I hope that this will be the uh, last message on this chapter and we can move into chapter 16 Um, let's read to verse number 20 and verse number 21 moreover The law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. That as sin has reigned unto death, Even so, my grace reigns through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ, our Lord. But let's look at the, first of all, the origin of the reign of grace. When did grace begin? Now, every monarch and every king has a dynasty. Every monarch and every king has a pedigree. You are, and by the way, you're always tracing back the the king back to his ancestors. That's why we became king. Whether you're dealing with heli Selassie or not, are you dealing with, uh, you know, the the truth of the matter is, you're dealing with the dynasty. They're always talking about the, the dynasty that goes back from the Queen of Sheba. It's the dynastic connection that makes them King. You know, Joe that comes to our church, uh, he hasn't been here for a while because he does security work. That is from um, Dominica. You know, his brother was the king of the Caribs in Dominica. I don't know if you know that. Yeah, he's the king. He's no longer the king. He's just been deposed. So somebody now replaced him. But you know how he, I asked Joe, but how do you become king? It has to do with your ancestry, your descendants. And if you're in a certain line, you're in line to be king. I'm saying that to say this, that when you look at grace, it has a wonderful dynasty and it has a wonderful pedigree. And you know when this pedigree began and when this dynasty began and when was the inauguration of the reign of grace? There are many times in the Bible we are given an answer, but I think one of the best answers we are ever given about when grace started is when we look at 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20. Look there for just a moment. In 1 Peter chapter 1, and verse number 20, if you look at verse uh, 19, first of all, he says, uh, he says, for you, not, for you know that you will not redeem in verse 18 with, uh, with corruptible things as silver and gold, but with the, uh, uh, from your vain conversation received from tradition by your fathers, but with the precious blood of Jesus as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. And notice, who, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. This inauguration of grace, this enthronement of grace, uh, was established long before there was time. The reign of grace began in eternity. The reign of grace began before this world existed. The reign of grace began before man was created. When the eternal God, the triune eternal God, got together and sat down to discuss the whole matter of creation, when this eternal God saw that man would fall, the question was, what will we do with man? Should we wipe man off the planet? Should we obliterate him? Should we exterminate him and start another race? What do we do? And the eternal council of the Godhead decided, we will not destroy all men. We will extend grace. So long before man ever came to existence, God said, I will put grace on the throne. No matter what happens to humankind, I will extend grace to him. Theologically, theologians call this the covenant of redemption. And the moment the decision was made that man would not be wiped out and man would not be obliterated, three conclusions were reached number one the father's purpose to save those who believe was put into operation we will save those who believe that was the father's purpose the son willfully subordinated that he would carry out the father's purpose and he would die on the cross on the behalf of humankind so that that pardon might be granted and the holy spirit volunteered that he would come and deal with fallen man and he would woo man and apply the redemptive work of Christ to the life of the one that believes. I'm saying to you tonight that the enthronement and the plan of grace was inaugurated from the very foundations of the world. Grace was not a reactive plan. Hey, we are surprised that this has happened. This is not what we thought would happen. We didn't know this was going to happen. Just a surprise. Absolutely not. Grace was a proactive plan. It was anticipated. It was known. And therefore grace was put on the throne way before. Way before. There was a world. Way before there was humankind. Grace reigned on the throne. Because the eternal God sat down in eternal council And decided we will act in grace towards man. That is how ancient the pedigree of grace is. And so Paul is here reminding us of the reign of grace. So this glorious reign of grace did not be, begin in, in New Testament times. It has a very ancient genealogy. And grace is something that runs from the book of Genesis right through the Bible. God acting in grace. I was going to do another sermon on the victories of grace. And what I was going to do basically is trace to the Old Testament when we thought that there was no hope. All of mankind would have been destroyed in the flood and Noah found grace in the sight of the Lord. See? At every juncture in human history where it seemed as though man would be obliterated God acted in grace. See? There were times when there was, was not even sure that any survivors on David's throne so the Messiah would come. And then miraculously, God intervened and saved one of the little children and hid him in the temple. That is grace. Right through the Old Testament, God is acting in grace. There was a time when we thought the whole nation of Israel would be killed. You remember Haman? A decree is made, all the Jews to be wiped out. But then God acted in grace and used a little woman called Esther. The grace of God preserved the nation because the Messiah has got to come. Because from eternity, he would die and put grace on the throne. See? The victories of grace. But that's not my intent tonight. My intent tonight is just simply to say to you that this distinguished king that rules on God's throne is not a recent monarch. He's an ancient monarch from eternal, for eternity. His pedigree and his genealogy reaches far back beyond time into the very eternal counsel of God. He started reigning then. And that is why for the first time that Eve and Adam sinned, God comes to the flat and makes a promise. I will, you would bruise the, this, the, the woman's seed, but the woman's seed would crush your head. That's grace. That's grace. Cain kills Abel and we panic. But out of Abel comes Seth, the next in line. Grace. God acted in grace and God ensuring that grace reigns. At every period in human history, the reign of grace is made prominent in scripture. So the boast of earthly kings and earthly thrones There's no resemblance between these earthly monarchs and this ancient eternal monarch whose genealogy stretches back into eternity. There's no comparison whatsoever. Grace reigns. And the origin of the reign of grace is distinguished by that long period in eternity where he was enthroned in the eternal counsel of God. That brings me to the second point. As we trace the history of grace, the second thing that concerns us is the character of this throne. Uh, Notice what Paul says back in uh, Romans chapter 5 and verse uh, number 21. The Apostle Paul, in dealing with the reign of grace, he said that as sin have reigned, by the way, the character of the reign of sin is death. Everything that sin put its hands on, it dies. Of course, there's physical death. But it's far beyond that. Relationships die. Everything die. Everything that death, sin has put its hand on dies. That was the character of the reign of death. And now Paul contrasts that with the character of the reign of grace. And Paul says the reign of grace is, is by righteousness through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So he's defining the nature he's defining the character of the throne of grace. I think you know this every single kingdom and every single government has a defining quality that marks out what this government is all about um, s- some feature distinguishes it to some governments today the, 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 the thing that the, it is what they call diversity that, that's the distinguishing mark we're going to put a big tent and we want everybody under the tent And everybody, so the the, the key thing there is that for some governments, is law the rule of law, not anarchy. The rule of law there's a distinctive uh, characteristic the nature of a particular kingdom. For some kingdoms, it is known for its ferocity and its cruelty. The Medo Persian Empire, for example, is known for that. For other kingdoms, it's known for its generosity, it's characterized by some quality. For some uh, kingdoms, it is known for its laxity and you know, kind of it, it runs without any real parameters. It's every man do his own thing. For others, it is, is, is very well organized and very systematized, and legalistic as it were. The character of kingdoms. There are some kingdoms that are known for their advancements in, in science and other, other achievements. There's some that are known for their accomplishments. That's the key thing that marks that kingdom. So what's the outstanding characteristic, therefore, of the kingdom of grace? What defines this kingdom? What characterizes this kingdom? Because the moment you talk about grace, which is unmerited favor, we get the opinion that it means that it doesn't matter how we live now. That's how people perceive grace. The Apostle Paul leaves us in no doubt as to what is the chief characteristic and feature of grace. The Apostle Paul lets us know that the key thing about this kingdom of grace, that it rules by righteousness through Jesus Christ the question is what does that mean what does that mean how we to grasp the meaning of this passage and how does it apply to us some people by the way tend to see grace as something quite weak and flabby but I remind you the reason why Paul is using the personification and talking about these as though they are reigning kings and giving human characteristics to the reign is because the emphasis there is on the power that these are like living things that control and the same way sin controlled us before grace now should control us that's what Paul is saying you can't decompose it you can't say that sin was so dominant in our lives and now grace is so flabby in our lives if sin reigned and control certainly grace reign must control too. Paul is very, very careful about this matter. There are those that think that when we talk about grace, it means that God ignores sin and God forgets sin, and God pretends that sin doesn't happen or never happens. The third group of the opinion that grace means that God has set aside His law, so the law has no any more purpose. It's like God shelved the law. And man no longer has to recognize the law. The people who think that, even Christians think that. But if you did that, you're destroying God's character because the law is an expression of God's character. It's just that the law has to be used lawfully, Paul says. We don't abandon the law. Which is what the church has done, by the way. In its attempt to preach grace, it has just completely abandoned the law so that the man sits in the pew, he doesn't have any consciousness that he's sinning. He doesn't see any reason why he should repent because he's told from beginning to the end, God loves you. The Apostle Paul is trying to, in a sense, I don't know if he was prophetic and he understood where the church would be at this period in our history. But he's very much concerned to know that once he mentions grace, righteousness is not the antithesis of grace, they're together. There are people who think that And say because there's no more law We can sin with impunity Sin doesn't matter anymore All that matters Is grace By the way such thinking is alien To the apostle Paul's theology Because you will find that In the next chapter we're coming to This is the problem Paul had He just just beefing up grace He thought grace reigning but you see the next few verses. Look at what he says. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. He knew the danger of elevating grace. Was that somehow it, it would motivate people to live careless lives. And since we're sin abounded grace much more abounded. The idea was well if that is true let us sin more to we get more grace. And Paul has to deal with that in chapter 6. Dealing with the whole doctrine of sanctification. That the power of sin is broken in the believer's life. I repeat, the power of sin is broken in the believer's life. I didn't say the believer is perfect. I didn't say the believer can't sin. But the power of sin is broken. The domination of sin in his life is broken. He's no longer a slave to sin, neither can he be. And if he finds himself in that position, he ought to ask him questions. One question: Do I really know this God? Do I really have real salvation? That's the question you should ask himself. Not rushing to a verse and building up a hope where there should be no hope. Let every man examine himself, Paul says, to see if he's in the faith. These are terrible words. But words that need to be stated again and again from the pulpit. Because the chief characteristic of our time is deception. Our Lord warns us again, deception, deception. That would be the chief characteristic of our times. And that is why it's so important to delve into scripture to understand what the Apostle Paul and the Word of God is teaching. In this passage, the Apostle Paul is not separating And creating the dichotomy between grace and righteousness Because to do so would only create chaos and havoc As I said in my introduction It only opens a whole Pandora box of evil In fact Jude had this problem to deal with as well Not just the Apostle Paul If you just look for Jude There's only one chapter in Jude Jude comes before Revelation So if you don't know your Bible Find Revelation and move it back You'll find Jude but, but let me show you uh, what Jude says in verse number 4 of Jude. He said in verse number 3, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you about common salvation, that's what we plan. I, I planned to write to you about salvation, explain the doctrine of salvation. But it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith. I had to stop because when I see what is happening and what is already beginning to infiltrate the New Testament church I want to have you defend the faith now here is what, why you have to defend the faith notice for there are certain men crept in unawares the, the creepers they're coming secretly privately privately into the church who were before ordained to this condemnation Notice ungodly men doing what? Turning the grace of God into what? Lasciviousness. Using grace as a basis for immorality. One of the persons of counsel uh, went to the pastor and was explaining their problems. And when she told me what the pastor told her, I almost fainted. Imagine a pastor saying to a woman who's got having problems with a marriage. This is what he says to her. I'm just sharing this with you. By the way, you don't know who I'm talking about. If I sleep with you, if I sleep with you, you would turn around and make me feel bad. Now, why do you suggest that? What pastor, I said to her, but what pastor would say that to a woman? He should be defrocked immediately. He doesn't belong in the church. He doesn't belong in the pulpit. The mere suggestion. I think he was throwing out a line to hear how she would respond. Listen to me. When you don't follow the truth of God's word, there are men in the pulpit who just see the women in the church as bedfellows. Who use the grace of God for lasciviousness. they are people who come into the church and they're looking for a woman or they're looking for a man. See. It's not God they want. It's not scripture they're concerned about. See. They're turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. I tell you this. I, I don't know. Uh, and by the way, I, 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 my problem is this. I try to put myself in that situation. and ask myself, but how could a pastor ever say something like that? What kind of a man is he? See, We well, see what Jude is saying? I, had a, I was tempted to talk about salvation but I realized that were people creeping into the church already taking tearing the grace of God into using religion to sleep with the women of the church. Winning their confidence. Every one of them, by the way, that I, uh, I, I deal with, I said, you, you, you know why we've got glass here in the, in the glass windows? You know you know where we got that? I, I explained to them and I said, I said to them, you know you know I don't counsel women by themselves. I'll never counsel women I said, unless I got somebody in the next room. I'm not going to put myself in a trap. But their men, believe in me, their ambition is to put as many notches on their gun as possible and in the pulpit and shit me in the pulpit. They turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. And that's why Jude said, I had to stop writing to you about salvation and said, You gotta, I gotta contend for the faith. What's the faith? The faith is about holiness, it's about righteousness. Grace and righteousness must never be separated. There must not be a false dichotomy between these two things. So I'm saying to you tonight. That the Apostle Paul is trying to say to us that the chief characteristic of this kingdom called grace is righteousness. And that seems a contradiction. When you begin to look at that particular term. So to understand what Paul is saying, I want to remind you again that one or two things we need to keep in mind while Paul is dealing with this. The, the, the first thing I mentioned before that we've got to remember the subject Paul is dealing with is the assurance of the believer's salvation. That the believer is eternally secure. Paul has not left that subject yet. He only leaves it when you creep into chapter 6. He's still dealing with this whole matter. He's still arguing for the believer's eternal security based on grace. But the problem we have, and I have, and we all have at some time, is how can somebody just love us? How can he just love us for no reason at all? Why does he show grace to me? Why can I believe that I have the grace of God in my life? Paul has to establish why we can depend upon grace. That grace of God towards us is dependent on Christ's righteousness. Now that changes the whole complexion altogether. Now I can depend on grace. Not how good I am, what I've done, but because the righteousness of Christ has now enabled God to extend grace to us. You see the connection? The apostle Paul is not juxtaposing terms without even thinking of what he's doing. He understands fully what he's doing. And he wants the believer to understand that this problem of grace that you have, you can't believe a loving God so that I don't have to do anything. It's not my works, it's not my deeds, it's not how good I am. That's a puzzle for everybody. But then we understand that that grace is free to us but came at infinite price to Christ. And it's his righteousness though that allows God to show grace. So God's grace towards us never changes. Why? Because Christ never changes. It's as eternal as Christ's righteousness is. So that's why we are in eternal grace. And you can ground your salvation in that once it becomes very clear that you are now in the realm of eternal grace. The only time that could ever change is if the righteous Christ changed. And he can't change because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The glory of grace... The Apostle Paul is dealing with. The Apostle Paul feels it's important to deal with this matter because grace deals with three things that stand in our way between us and God. And the only way that uh, you and I can deal with these three things that stand in our way between us and God is if somebody is able to remove these barriers so that God's grace can flow towards us. One of the great things that stand between us and God is God's holy character. Let me ask you a question here tonight. How is it possible for a holy, eternal, righteous, just God who is pure, cannot look upon evil? How is it possible for such a God to extend... Mercy and favor to a wretched sinner that cares nothing about him and is living a rebellious life against all his laws all his plans How is it possible for God like that if he's eternally righteous eternally holy pure and undefiled and He has unadulterated righteousness, how is it possible to do that? Do you know that God cannot violate his own nature You remember what Paul says in Timothy? He cannot deny who he is. He's holy. He can't put his holiness on the back burner and forget that you're a sinner. It's against his holy character to do that. It's against his holy nature. He can't do it. And by the way, let me just tell you this. There's no other way to understand hell than to really understand God's holiness. i would be very honest with you, right? I couldn't put a lizard to burn in a fire forever. Honest to God, I couldn't do it. I could put a sheep that remain alive. Now I'm just telling you, I couldn't do it. But you know why I can't do it? I'm a sinner. I'm not holy. See? I don't understand what real holiness is all about. And that's why people have a problem with hell. But I'm saying to you that God cannot deny himself. His regulatory attribute, the one that controls every other attribute is his holiness. His holy mercy, his holy love, his holy compassion, his holy long suffering. And that is why when you notice in the Old Testament, what's the key, what's the key character, what's the key attribute emphasized in the Old Testament? Holiness. That's why he seemed to be a God of wrath in the Old Testament. He wants us to know He's holy. And then when we come to know that, what does he emphasize? His love. Well, you can't deal with love before you understand how holy I am because love will abuse my holiness. God's character stands in the way. So the question is how could God remain holy at the same time and still forgive a sinner who's committed sin against him? Is that not going against his nature and his law? Yes. So the question is how can it be done? So how does this holy character of God to be dealt with that stands between us and God? Who will satisfy his character on our behalf? And by the way, if anyone is going to meet his character, it has to be God himself. See, That's why we must believe in the Trinity. Whether you understand the Trinity or not. By the way, you cannot understand eternal love unless there's a Trinity. Because love must be between at least two persons. The glory of the scriptures. So how and by what stupendous miracle can this holy, righteous, infinitely pure God extend His grace to the sinner who is His enemy by nature and His enemy by practice? How is this holy character going to be satisfied? That stands in his way. This is another problem that we face with God that only grace can deal with. And that's the barrier of a broken law. C- can I say to you that we have all broken God's law? But God can't just set aside his law as though it means nothing. Because the law is an expression of God's character. God can't just discard the rules he's established because it would seem as though he didn't know what he was doing in the first place. It's like Pastor Murphy, he's setting up certain rules and then later on you tell me, the Pastor, you set up the rules. so You, you didn't know that? You embarrassed the pastor now because you've you, you got one on him, right? These are things that we can do. But God can't do that. God can't do that. But when we look at the law that's against us, if I were to take some time tonight and by the way I do plan to preach sometime this year on the Ten Commandments I want to go through the Ten Commandments but I would suggest to you that if you ever sit down and go through the Ten Commandments without failure you and I have broken every single one of them every single one of them you saw, a pastor I instill are you sure about that you have not stolen ideas and wrote it on a paper yet and then give credit? What do you call that? Intellectual theft. We all, we all, in some way or the other, have committed offenses of every single law that God has written, every single one of them. And the thing about it is that God's law is exalted above His name. God's word is perfect in heaven already. You think God can just set aside the law? So the question is this: How does this God know? Who is so holy Who establishes law How do we deal with the law how, how, On what basis can this law now be Fulfilled On our behalf I can't do it You can't do it Who does it for us see, I think you see where I'm coming from Look when we look at what God requires of us In the law you know what we say We like Cain You know what Cain said My sin is too hard Heavy for me to bear. See. And when we look at what the law of God reminds us of what God requires of us, I think we all feel that same way. If this is what God demands, this is too heavy for us. None of us can bear up the weight of these things. There's a third problem. Not only the problem of God's holy character, not only the problem of God's holy law, but also there's this whole problem of our own sins. Our own sins. I don't know if you know this, but sin really complicates life. Really does complicate life. And it's very difficult for us to fathom sin. You know, when you think about it, when we talk about sin, it's not just the present sin. I mean, there's so many in the present sin. But but what about, we got to deal with the past sin. Now, how are you going to deal with past sin? You tell me how you're going to deal with it. Can you confess every one you ever committed for years, what, 50 years, 60 years? Can you go back in your memory and you remember, remember all these things? So, how are you going to deal with it? But not only your past sin, your present, but the future sin. How are you going to deal with it? Sin so is a very complicated thing. And that is why grace is the answer. But grace can only be extended to us if all of these things that are barriers between us and God are taken care of. And the other thing I would say about sin that is so complicated you know we worry about our acts the things that we do. I will shock you tonight if you think you haven't done actually but thought about. You commit more sin with your thoughts and your words than you do with your actions. Far more than that. How are you going to deal with that? The Apostle Paul is reminding us that grace is the only solution and that only if grace reigns, these problems can be dealt with. So the point that Paul is now drawing to the attention is this. The righteousness of Christ meets those three things that stand between us and God. Because he has a righteousness, that's God's righteousness. He meets the character of God. Because he lived and fulfilled every law perfectly on our behalf. Without sin, he takes care of that. And because he voluntarily took all our sins upon himself and became our substitute. His righteousness has now been the answer to all our three problems that we have. And Paul is now saying to us, that's how grace reigns, but it only reigns because of the righteousness of Christ. If you look with me at Romans chapter 3 and verse 26, for just a moment, Romans chapter 3 and verse, uh, let's read from verse number 24. Paul explains this, by the way, He said in verse 24 to verse 26. He said, being justified freely by His grace. Notice the words. Through what? The redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Notice the next verse. Whom God has set forth to be a, propi- a satisfaction. See? You remember in the book of uh Isaiah chapter 53. He should look on the travail of his soul and be satisfied. That's the word there. What Christ has done for us. God is totally satisfied. He is our propitiation. He goes on to say. Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. To declare what? His righteousness. For the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance. Of God. The apostle Paul is explaining to us here that it is all made possible. Grace is made possible because of the righteousness of Christ. Without His righteousness, there's no grace for you, and there's no grace for me. But we now live under the canopy of grace. Because grace reigns because of Christ's righteousness that is put and imputed to our account the moment we put our faith and trust. Jesus Christ. This is what Paul is wanting us to understand. He not only the origin of the reign of grace. The, the, his whole pedigree it starts in all eternity. But Paul wants to understand the character of this grace. The thing about it is. The character is about, about righteousness. Not mine. But Christ. See? And this is what makes grace possible. So the next time the enemy comes to you and the enemy says to you oh you're a Christian aren't you what a fine Christian you are what a fine Christian but think about that thought you had you would have murdered that person if you could you would have assassinated the character if you could and if the opportunity was there you probably would have done something that you nobody if the people didn't know I probably would be engaged in that the next time the enemy comes and start pointing out Those things to you And begin to make you Doubt That you are eternally secure Go back to him and say Quite frankly My grace God's grace doesn't depend On me How good I am How bad I am God extends grace to me Purely on the basis Of the righteousness of Christ See? Because the question You and I will Always face How much sin is How much sin do you have to sin before you're lost? There's no other assurance you can have as a believer, no greater assurance than to know that you dwell in the realm of grace, under the canopy of grace. But the reason why that grace is there is because of Christ's righteousness. This is Paul's teaching here in this passage. I'm going to stop here tonight because that's where I wanted to go. And uh, I hope I haven't in any way confused you. I hope that in some way you have understood the great teaching the Apostle Paul has in this passage. Because I am telling you, until you die, the enemy is going to come back again and if that will be the Son of God, those if, 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 if. There are moments when you feel like you're already in the kingdom. there never one done in the dump. You're wondering, well, you know, where do I stand with God? And the only way out of this particular fiction that the devil will create is to go back to scripture and understand what the scripture and remember is faith in God's word, faith is the answer to God's word. You, it is written, Jesus said, It is written, He didn't argue. You got a better argument than I've got, He just said, Devil, it is written, See? and that's what you've got to use the word of God as a sword of the spirit to slay the enemy. If you're going to enjoy this Christian life and have full assurance, you are not going to get it by looking at yourself. You're not going to get it by wondering how perfect you are. You're not going to look at it by comparing with others. The only way you'll ever have full assurance is to be grounded in understanding that this grace is yours because of Jesus Christ. It doesn't depend upon you. It's all about him. That's what I would like to just stress this evening. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Apostle Paul being so meticulous. We would think he could rush off to another chapter, and just as he's coming to the close, he has to once again let me put in one other matter here, so that you can have even greater assurance. And clearly, when we understand what is here in this passage, if we could grasp it, that our salvation is based on God's grace, not on our merits, not on our goodness. Not an innate righteousness that we possessed, when we, we can't understand how that is possible, it becomes possible only because of the righteousness of Christ that has satisfied the character of God, the law of God, and dealt with the whole sin question and becoming my substitute, taking my penalty, taking my wrath, and imputing to me his righteousness. This is the glorious gospel we stand. It's the gospel of grace. Would you firm up our faith in this truth? And would you help believers to understand that in the battle of their minds, the enemy will challenge them again and again. And there's only one recourse that they will have, and that is to your word. Father, help those uh, believers who may be struggling as I speak, and who may be in their minds saying, Pastor, that happened last week. This happened a month ago. I was in this deep, this pond, this... I, I, I was losing it as it were the word of God is able to enlighten our minds to build up our faith and to give us encouragement to the word because God wants us to live a life of joy and peace not necessarily happiness in the sense that there are no problems but even in the midst of our trials to know the joy of knowing the Lord and have the assurance and whatever happens It'll be alright in the morning speak to your people and strengthen your people encourage your people use your word to bolster their faith and to make them more victorious in their Christian life we thank you for your word tonight and we thank you for those who have listened we just trust that it has benefited in some small way and encourage them to understand your truth so that they would have a greater assurance of being rightly related to you as a result of the righteousness of Christ. Thank you, in Christ's name, amen.
0: Be sure you join us again next time here on Sermons of Grace as Pastor Murphy continues our study of the book of Romans and moves on to chapter 6. If you'd like to contact Pastor David Murphy or Grace Baptist Church, please call 268 462 Four two three zero, or visit during one of their service times. Sunday school is at 9 a.m., Sunday morning at 10 a.m., Sunday evening at 7 p.m., or Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. Grace Baptist Church is located on Rowan Henry Street in Gamble's Terrace, Antigua.